Hello, fellow kids, and welcome to episode 48 of Hello, Fellow Kids. It's the episode where we read a book and tell you about the book. Yes. It's, it's different from all the other episodes. So if you clicked on this in error, back out quick. Well, I mean, this is actually, this is directly after the March Madness episode, so if somebody started there, they're just like, this is weird that they just ranked a bunch of books that I've never heard of. I think this podcast should be more popular with kids who have to write book reports, because then they just (laughs) listen, and then they'd get the gist of what the book's about, and then, like, feasibly could write about it. They just have to, like, tone down the language. (laughs) This month, we returned to Catherine Arden's does it have a formal series name? It we call it the Small Spaces series, but it's like it's referred to as on Goodreads the seasonal so spookums. Like, it was the seasonal spookums, and um, the thing is, okay, oh, oh okay, uh, are you you were in mid intro, weren't you? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we read uh, Dark Waters. The, uh, the go next, ahead. <laughs> yeah, Dark Waters. Yeah, the next installment in the Small Small Spaces universe, the um, S S B U. Small Spaces book universe. <laughs> yeah, this is the latest installment. And okay. All right. We we kind of discussed recently about how we've read a whole lot of books that aren't really standalone-y, but just kind of build up to like another book in the series. And that's what this book was. And then I realized I needed to kind of try and look at this. Like, I feel like this whole story more encapsulates one bigger story and it's like serialized or something mm-hmm. so otherwise i was just like okay i liked the characters in this book i thought things were spooky but still i was kind of like i don't i don't know you know yeah I, I, wasn't, um... I wasn't like i love this but i couldn't pinpoint and say like well this is where it went wrong or i didn't like this over here yeah so i'll so i feel similarly I felt like my opinion of the book improved while I was writing my synopsis after that, but I think what I realized while I was writing it was that I think this is a... It reads to me like a first draft of a really good book, but it's, as it stands, all right. Does that make sense? Like, there are a lot of components here that I find really interesting, but I thought... Yeah. I thought it was kind of... I feel like the stuff was... There's things that could have been done better. Yeah. Yeah, I think we, I know in the previous book, they completely sidelined a character and you didn't like that. But then in this book, he's center stage, but at the detriment of sidelining the character that we've kind of been with for like yes. three books now or two books now. So I was like, oh, this feels weird to not be in her headspace. And I was like, well, wait a second. Was she in, were we in her headspace for all of, um, oh crap, what was it? Uh, cold, cold voices. Was that Dead it? Dead voices? Dead voices. Thank you. I was like, this is the cold one, the winter one. Because I was like, wait, was Coco in charge of that book? I couldn't remember. I think it was like Coco lead Ollie secondary, but not by a huge margin. I think what's happening here is the idea of kind of fleshing out each one with their own, like each one gets to take more of a center role in a book. And then there's the there's the group book as well over the course of four of them. Um, I think yeah. that's kind of what she's going for. So one of the big things that I think is worth pointing out, and we don't talk about this sort of thing a whole lot for like people who are going out to buy the book or whatever, the hardcover book, it's not nearly as long as it appears to be. Um, it actually ends before page 200, and then what follows is 40 to 50 pages of 
excerpts from the other two books in the series. Yeah. Which I'm used to books having, like, you know, turn here, turn the page for, a, you know, a look at the next book or something like that. But this felt almost like a sign of, like, lacking confidence in the product a little bit. Like, it felt like they were like, are you sure that's the whole book? Like, let's punch it up size-wise so it sits better on the shelves with the others. I don't know. It felt it felt weird to end with so much paper still left in the book. Yeah. And ultimately, like, bef- like we definitely have things, to, or at least I definitely have things to say about this in both directions. I will say that I still am looking forward to the fourth book, regardless. God, me too. See, I, that's why I was just like, I need to look at this as, like, a serialization of a larger story. So I was just like, this is just like the spring chapter. Then we'll get to the summer chapter conclusion and we'll know every, I feel like we'll feel differently about the series once we have like the complete story, you know, entirely possible. Yeah. Well, it depends on how the last story goes, but um, I don't know. I have confidence in her though. Cause even when I'm just like, this isn't the best. I still, it's still good. Yeah. Like, cause she did everything I find scary, like in this book. And I was like, oh no, we're out in deep water. And oh no, there's a snake. Uh, how do you know all the things I'm the most terrified of? It's not fair. Yeah, I definitely feel like, you know, obviously having not read the fourth book because it's not out yet, uh, I'm getting the feeling that she had a much stronger image of the end point of the series than maybe some of the middle parts. So I'm. I have relative confidence that the series is going to end pretty strongly. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think that these two middle books definitely both have their, their upsides and they're still enjoyable overall, but it's it. They, neither of them feel nearly as strong as the start. I think it may be kind of like a, like a gentle U shaped series where like the first and the fourth are going to kind of be the standouts and the second and third ones are like still okay, but like, well, I mean, nobody's favorite book is The Two Towers. Isn't this, like, the third time that you've said that, and that we always have to be like, The Two Towers are great, I love Pippin and Mary. <laughs> 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 then I say something about the ends, and then we move on. <laughs> All right, we'll pretend that it happened, and we'll move on. Okay, cool. <laughs> But yeah, like when I was writing it, like all of the components that I was writing about, I was like, this is really interesting. But then I flashed back to when I was reading it and not necessarily being as engaged with it in the moment as I was with the concepts of it looking back on them. And that was something that I haven't really experienced a lot with the stuff that we've read. I guess we'll kind of parse that out a bit more in the discussion. Yeah, parse. Parsley. Well, did you ever see that movie, The House Bunny? Of course you haven't. And um, it's a movie. Why, why have I not seen it? Well, because of course you haven't. I'm sorry. It came out in like 2006, seven, maybe even eight. And you would have been a child. And then it wasn't that big of a movie. And then I don't know if it lived on cable for years or whatever. So that's why I'm assuming you haven't seen it. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it. But um, it's a movie starring Anna Ferris, who used to be a Playboy bunny. And then, um, she, she was like always overlooked for being like the centerfold. So she like quits and like leaves the house and she doesn't really know where to go from there. So she ends up in a sorority because it's kind of like the Playboy Mansion of like all the girls living together. And she ends up in this really sad sorority that, um, Emma, oh God, Emma Stone is in. And she's 
like giving the girls a pep talk and then the girls are don't know if they're like really into it but then like emma stone stands up and like she like reiterates what anna ferris just said and um says hence we'll be successful and then anna ferris goes yeah hence so me saying yeah parse is what i was ah okay anyway that's a a 2000s deep cut for everyone out there that's also the movie where she went on a date with a guy and wanted to look smarter, so she wore glasses that weren't her prescription, and she falls on this table like, at the restaurant and ruins these people dinner, and she goes, sorry for all the gravity. <laughs> so there's two really good lines in that movie. And also the lead singer of All American Rejects is in it for some reason, which is very weird. I would not know what he looks like. He has, uh, he's very tall and skinny and had... Wild, dark hair that should have been brushed, but no one brushed it back then. Okay. And if you see his face, he hopes it gives you hell, so. Alright, are you ready to get into this? Yes. Okay. We begin on a rainy spring evening in East Evansburg. Brian, Ollie, and Coco are gathered in the inn Brian's family lives in, reading about local ghost stories while their parents are out. Ever since the events at the ski lodge and the farm before that, the trio has become more invested in learning about strange happenings in their area. One story that strikes them in particular is about the wreck of a ship called the Goblin in Lake Champlain. Uh, legend says you can still see the ship on foggy nights and hear its captain, William Sheehan, cursing the ship that sunk it. Suddenly, while reading about these strange happenings, Ollie's watch goes off. Hush, comes the message from her deceased mother. The lights flicker out. There's a knock at the door. Then the sound of someone circling the house. The door handle turns, about to open. The kids prepare to run, but the sudden flash of headlights outside scares away who or what ever was at the door. Their parents are back, the power is on, and things are back to normal. That is, except for a small circle of paper left on the front porch. A round black spot and a cryptic message on the other side. Bell, dog, Saturn, day, flower, moon. A warning from the smiling man. It's time for round three. For a while now, the kids have considered telling their parents what's been going on. They don't want to put the adults in danger, but they're also starting to realize that they may need more help to end their battle with the Smiling Man. Brian is especially resistant to telling anyone, because he feels the need to redeem himself for the last book. Thank God we're addressing that. So for now, at least, they keep the Smiling Man a secret. It's time for dinner. Coco's mom is the last to arrive, but once she's there, she has something to suggest to the group. A tour of Lake Champlain, and the legend of its knockoff Nessie, Champ. She can write an article about their tour guide, Dane Dimmons, and any strange things they might see. Ollie's dad is game, but Brian's parents are less than thrilled. They aren't too keen on the negative influence the girls have had on their son. His grades have slipped a bit, and he has shown no more interest in hockey or spending much time with his teammates. It's almost like he went through a traumatic experience that has destroyed any sense of normalcy in his life. But of course, they know nothing of that. That being said, Brian is able to convince them to let him go on the trip if he studies more and does more chores. Yeah. So, my first note, I said we're back in the small spaces world where no one is having fun. <laughs> They're not. That's true, like, yeah. <laughs> it's so, it's so sad. I got bummed, like, immediately. And um, at least now, like, in the previous book, in um, Dead Voices, they were all like, yeah, nothing happened, we're good, we're gonna ignore warning signs, blah blah. And they've just swung to, like, the other extreme, where there's just Constant vigilance and stacks of these books everywhere 
where I'm surprised it took this long for Brian's parents to go, okay, like, what's going on with the books? Like, you used to read fun <laughs> stuff, and now you're just constantly miserable, and you're always at these girls' houses, and I don't know about this friendship. Um, and then the other thing, it's stupid, but, like, the kids are only by themselves in this house because Brian's parents are going to get pick up pizza. And I wrote, why did this task require two people? <laughs> I'd forgotten I'd written that, but I was like skimming my notes while you were reading and I had to muffle my cluster. <laughs> I forget how kind of salty I get while I'm writing this stuff. Even when I like things, I actually, I think you could tell I like something more by the amount of like goofy stuff I write. Um, uh, have you ever read Treasure Island? I think I did, but it was... I was probably like 13, so I don't really remember much. Well, I never read it, but um, I do know the Black Spot is was not a real pirate thing. It was made up for that book. So I, when it was like spoken of later, like, oh, yeah, the Black Spot, was like, that's something pirates said. And I'm like, no, they didn't. Robert <laughs> Louis Stevenson made that up. <laughs> but it's true. I saw it in Dead Man's Chest. Saw it in Muppet Treasure Island. <laughs> I love that movie. I've never seen it. I don't think I've seen any Muppets films. I've seen some episodes of the Muppet Show, but I've never watched any of the you Muppets should, movies. You should watch. You should watch Muppet Treasure Island and Muppet Christmas Carol, and you need to see those because in Muppet Treasure Island, Tim Curry is in it and plays Long John Silver, and he just goes ham in that role. No pun intended. Sorry, Miss Piggy. And like, he's completely like grinning in on the joke. Yes, this is a Muppet movie and we're Muppets and this is a great time. But then we have uh, Muppet Christmas Carol where we have Michael Caine playing uh, Ebenezer Scrooge and he plays it straight and serious. Like he's working with other actors and not Muppets. And both approaches are perfect. And <laughs> the exact way you need to play it if you're going to be in a Muppet movie. One or the other. You can't do any in-betweeny shit. You've got to commit. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that black spot thing, I was just like, uh-oh, I know what that means. Speaking of uh, Tim Curry, I discovered, because we had it at the library, it's an old PC adventure game of Frankenstein starring Tim Curry in like one of those like live-action filmed and then superimposed on the graphics sort of games and there's a sticker on it that says seven dollar rebate if you own mist and i'm like what is this time capsule <laughs> who does he play does he play I victor frankenstein I would victor frankenstein it's alive <laughs> that's his voice is perfect for that it's like immediately i what i pictured you don't get like freaking tim curry and be like you're igor i don't even think <laughs> igor's in the books i think he was invented like... i believe yeah I, I think he's just a like a film thing i don't even think he was in any of the film where's igor from uh because we always like he's always like some punchback thing like yes master and we're like where did this come from i don't think he's in the boris karloff film there is a hunchback lab assistant in that one but he's not named igor it's pronounced igor you're welcome. For all the kids at home, watch Young Frankenstein when you're done watching the Muppet yeah, movies. It's I recommend. actually Frankenstein. Sorry, I'm American. We say <laughs> things differently here. 
What was the name of the woman that, like, every time you said her name, like a horse whinnied? <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen it. Mel Brooks is such a, a throw spaghetti at the wall sort of, like, filmmaker. Like, you have some absolute gem productions that he's done, and then you have some that are like, all of this is really stupid. And, like, I guess uh, most of it is stupid, but it's, like, whether it's, like, stupid in, like, a, a music way or stupid in a why'd you waste my time on this sort of way. Is that why you waste my time and how you feel about Blazing Saddles? Dude, I got halfway through that and I'm like, what is, what is any of this? <laughs> it's totally stupid. I like it, but, like... It's, it's also yeah. really, it's really hard to, like, reconcile the N-word at this point. Like, it always, right, it always yeah. was, but it's like, eh... The jokes yeah, better be real time. good if we're throwing that around, too. Well, there's just sometimes where you're just like, I don't know about that. Like, yeah. You know? uh, but if you guys want to watch a Mel Brooks film, I would suggest High Anxiety, because it is his uh, spoof, pastiche, whatever you want to call it, of Alfred Hitchcock films. And it's really good. And I think there isn't as much problematic humor in it as there is in uh, Blazing Saddles. Anything else for notes on this section? I was already like, you know, when's the Smiling Man coming into play? Is Coco's mom coming back late? Is she, is she the Smiling Man this time around? Like, I was already I was like, wondering are, that too. are you? Where she turns and just like her face just stretches up into like this big creepy smile. Like that terrible movie Truth, uh, was it called Truth or Dare? I think that's it. I don't know. Where you have to finish a game of Truth or Dare people die you have to do the dare uh-huh yeah um it has the potential to be good but wasn't right oh and when you heard mr dimmon's name i immediately wrote dimmed dome in my <laughs> they, they zoom it, out and it's this endless lake and also endless hat yeah when when they show up and she's like okay um we gotta try and find him and ollie points like over there and it's just because the boat's garish and stupid for like the tours but they'd be funny because he's just wearing all these hats so it just shows up at the arena like okay yeah he uh there he is it's dim a dome uh, i didn't even really watch fairly odd parents but i know that at least <laughs> okay are you ready to move on to the next part yeah let's hit it okay on the school bus the next morning, Brian sits next to his old teammate, Phil Greenblatt, who he hasn't really talked to since the whole Smiling Man fiasco started. Brian looks down at the papers in Phil's lap and notices a drawing of Jonathan, a very particular scarecrow. In fact, the pages are covered with scarecrows. Brian is shocked. He thought only he, Coco, and Ollie remembered. But when he asks Phil, Phil says they're just from dreams. At lunch, our heroes meet to discuss the coded message from the Smiling Man. They figure out that Saturn Day references Saturday, and that Flower Moon is the old term for the full moon that occurs in May. Therefore, something will happen to them on a Saturday in May, which is right around the corner. The dog bell thing still doesn't make a lick of sense. Brian tells them about Phil's scarecrow drawings, and the girls suggest Brian talk to him. Maybe tell him what went down. Coco still isn't fond of Phil since he bullied her during the fall, but the presence of the Smiling Man has shifted her priorities somewhat. The day of the trip arrives, and when they reach the dock, they are surprised to see that their guide, Dane Dimmodome, is accompanied by his nephew, who is none other than Phil. Things are understandably awkward, but Phil is relatively quick to acknowledge what a jerk he was in the past and apologize. This provides an opportunity for the girls to ask him about what he remembers, but he avoids any conversation that might steer them in that direction. 
The boat trip gets underway, and Phil soon notices Coco drawing a picture of the Smiling Man. He remarks that he saw the Smiling Man just last week, and he gave him... something. Ollie is quick to ask why he would ever speak to the Smiling Man, let alone take something from him, considering he turned Phil into a scarecrow. Phil angrily denies that such a thing ever happened for real, insisting it was a hallucination. The tension is broken by Mr. Dimidome pointing out an island in the lake that doesn't exist on any map, which the captain is extraordinarily curious about. When the rest of the group suggests not visiting it, he makes an offhanded remark about someone giving him a black spot, which is a symbol for marking someone for death. Huh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, in my notes, right after that, I wrote, here we fucking go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, I feel really bad for Phil. Like, that went away a little bit later because he holds the idiot ball for this. Otherwise the whole rest of the story isn't going to happen, but yeah, poor Phil. Yeah. And I think we've all kind of been there when you kind of haven't been hanging around like a friend you've had. Like it says that Brian and Phil had been like friends since like preschool. And now Brian just exclusively hangs out with Coco and Ollie. So they haven't really, talk to each other so sitting each with each other on the for like a 20 minute bus ride is really awkward yeah and i've been in that exact position before <laughs> sitting on a school bus with someone who used to be my best friend and then just wasn't anymore we're both like so yeah <laughs> yeah she asked me if i had a crush on anybody and i was like why would i confide in you so i said like taylor hansen and she just like looked at me like i was insane and i was just like Okay, no one we go to school with. I don't know. For the kids at home, Taylor Hansen was the uh, middle brother in a group called Hansen that I was obsessed with through middle school and most of high school. He was the middlest mbop. <laughs> yeah, he was like the actually attractive one. And some would say the only talented one. But <clears throat> I'm just saying some. I'm not saying me. I don't. I don't disagree. You can find out more on our spinoff podcast, That Handsome Devil. No, I don't. We're, we're past that time in my life. It'd be weird. So, like, how amazingly scary manipulative is Coco? She's like, we're going to get what we need to get from Phil. Just, I'll go in there. I'll get it. And she does. Right? She's kind of like Hermione when Hermione's just like, no, we're getting stuff done. And, like traps Rita Skeeter in a friggin' jar and, like, makes that girl have, like, horrible welts all over her face when she, like, uh, tells about their secret club and shit, you know? Yeah. It's like, Coco is, like, with a purpose, is kind of scary. It's always nice when it's somebody that maybe they have a reason not, like, that you wouldn't suspect it, because she's kind of small and a bit clumsy and stuff, but... Yeah. But if she's got, if, if she's got something that needs doing... She should be a cop. She would get confessions. She'd know what to do. I mean, that's sitting there sketching out the guy. was. I was just like, you are brilliant. You manipulative little shit. <laughs> you are my hero. Coco is the hero of this series. Like, I 120% believe that. I think that's all I wanted to say. I think we're going to get into a specific conversation about it a bit later. Um, but I really like seeing that we're really addressing some of the psychological ramifications of exactly what they've been dealing with, and not just them, but, like, the people around them as well. Yeah. Um, 
it's really cool that we're at the point where it's not just like, and then a weird thing happens to them, and then they go back to their normal life for a few months, and then a weird thing happens. It's like, no, all of this is affecting these people, um, and it's yeah. really creeping into their like real life and their like you know mental health and things like that. I think that's what's always going to save Catherine Arden, even if the book isn't completely perfect, is she's so thoughtful in how she set this up. Yeah. You know, like she really realistically thought about like we could just like have this hand waving like monster of the week type thing like, uh oh, back into the situation, you know, like we would in like a Goosebumps, you know, series. But these kids are traumatized and the parents recognize it, but they don't really know what the trauma is. I mean, they know that the kids disappeared on their field trip back in um, the fall, but they don't know what really what happened during the winter. Yeah. Oh, also um, when, when they're like reading the warning and they're like, well, good thing we're going to be out on a boat in the middle of a lake. Safest place. I was just like, why do you guys think that's safe? He's gotten you in public before. Like, why? I can't think of anything more claustrophobic. Have you been on a boat? They're small. Like, unless you're on Jeff Bezos's, uh super yacht, boats are small and claustrophobic. I mean, like, people who have huge boats don't do tours like this. Dimodome is not a rich guy with, like, a friggin'... Even, like, cruise liners, it's still very narrow hallways and stuff. Yeah. So, they're deceptively big, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> not, not really. Not, no. So, I was just like, no, that's still a small space. Stay away from the small... I'm just Stay like, away from small Why? spaces! <laughs> Come on, you guys! Rule one! I think that's it. Okay. Ollie's watch goes off again, this time saying, fish, with the word crossed out. This aligns great with Phil bringing a fishing rod out and casting a line. While he waits for a bite, Coco decides to solve the last piece of their message from earlier by asking what bells would mean on a ship. Mr. Dimmons explains an old nautical way of telling time and mentions that a bell in the dog watch hour would be around 4.30, which, hey, that's now, on a Saturday, in May, while someone is fishing. Okay, let's cut to the chase. Phil reels in a nightmare snake. It's silver and vicious, and although, and although small, attacks Phil without hesitation. Ollie's dad blocks the bite and is struck himself, black venom dripping from the creature's fangs. Then, while the group is still stunned by what they just brought aboard, an enormous crash rocks the entire ship. Things quiet down long enough for Mr. Dimmons to kill the snake, and the parents to decide the trip is over. Time to radio ahead for an ambulance and start heading to shore. Phil searches for a first aid kit while Mr. Dimmons ignores everyone else and goes about documenting the snake as proof of a sea monster in Lake Champlain. He seems almost possessed by the task, trying to convince everyone to wait a bit longer before getting help so he can take some measurements of the creature. This is, of course, insane, and it's probably the second biggest reason the boat is not getting back to shore. The first is that the motor is gone. Just a massive hole in the bottom of the boat where the thing used to be. The ship is sinking. Also, no radio or cell service. Mr. Dimmons goes below deck again and doesn't come back up. When Phil goes to follow, he watches his uncle get swallowed up by a massive... something. Brian tries to help Phil recover, but then he sees it too. A mouth with teeth the size of his forearm, attached to a body covered in silvery scales. Mama Snack. They go back up and try to convince the others of what they saw, and even though it sounds crazy, more ramming attacks from the beast provide some good evidence. 
Reluctantly, they decide to make for the unmapped island. They load everyone onto one of the two life rafts, then launch the other raft in the opposite direction as a decoy, while they paddle as quietly as they can to shore. They're about halfway to the island when Ollie's watch says, FAST. The time for stealth is over. They scramble the last leg of their trip to shore, and everyone makes it to land just before the monster reaches them. When they turn around, the beast is gone like it was never there. On a tree nearby, a warning is carved. May God have mercy on your souls. It's actually, uh, may God have mercy. Merci. May God have your thank soles. you on your solas. Merci on your solas. Sorry. Yeah, um, boy, this went to, I, I wrote, everything goes to shit really fast. Because <laughs> it does. I felt like we wandered out of this series and into a series of unfortunate events. Just for, because the kids are all like, put the rod away. Throw it back in the ocean. Stop. Why am I even talking? (laughs) (laughs) The kids are just as one going, stop it. Like, and, and then Phil's just like, no, this is important. Otherwise this plot isn't going to (laughs) happen. But like, I I mean, I don't think that was bad writing because we, we know why he doubled down the way he did. But, um, yeah, just like Mr. Dimmons in particular, just like, okay, this is an unknown creature that bit you and your whole arm's turning black, but you could wait like, 30 minutes, right? I was like, are you out of your mind? And isn't until Coco's mom's like, hey, you want a lawsuit, bitch? That he's finally like, okay, I guess I can make some effort. (laughs) Yeah. And the kids, the children had to be like, okay, well, we need to get off the boat. While the mom's still like ditzing with the radio. I'm like, radio's not working. Just stop. Yeah. Stop futzing with it and focus on getting them out. You're on a sinking boat. You're really going to fiddle with the thing still. Like, lady, I know that you're like, I have one thing I can do. It's like, okay, it's not helping. And so the children have to be like, okay, yeah, launch the decoy boat. And we'll go in this one. Let's pull it on shore. We need to make a fire. You know, <laughs> these poor kids, because they've gone through two books worth of just BS. Yeah. So they, they're like, okay, this is like a screwed up, unprecedented situation. So we got this. Like, these kids need to like, grow up and then work for the president or something because they could handle anything if they could handle this. It was, yeah, it was also interesting. I feel like, I think this book, correct me if I'm wrong, steers the most into, like, the horror being less about, like, weird paranormal stuff. Like, there's some of that, too, but it's also just, like, it's just straight-up survival. Like, I don't know where I am or how I'm going to, like, eat and get water and things like that. Like, it, it... it brought more like real, real world fears into it as well, um, yeah. which I think is a a good way to add some variety to the series without like deviating too far from the core of it. Just like thinking right. of what other kinds of things are scary besides just like spooky ghosts. So the answer is snake. I don't like snakes. This one did not give me nightmares the way Redwall did. <laughs> This snake doesn't talk, so I think that helped. There's some creepy snake just saying its own name and like, ugh, God, I hate it. Plus, it's more likely you'll find like a smaller snake, but not like a big old river. I'm like, that, you're not gonna see that anywhere, it's fine. I'm not afraid of snakes. That's good. I'm afraid of other things without legs. Okay. Are you recording this from the back of your motorcycle? <laughs> Always. You're in the sidecar. <laughs> I've actually have you ever been in a sidecar? 
No. I have his pre-K. I was like six, and I've been chasing that high ever since. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. All the other kids wanted race car beds. I wanted a sidecar bed. Well, my uncle was a biker, and he had a lot of biker friends, and we went to some friends of his house, and the dad had a sidecar on his motorcycle, so he took us around. I think they lived in a cul-de-sac, and we rode around either the block or the cul-de-sac in there, and they had a sunken living room and a really big TV, and I watched The Wizard of Oz, and that's all I remember. I don't know remember anything else about the people or why we were there, but that's what happened. Uh, my next door neighbors when I was little, uh, were also bikers, and there was a time, one time they took the kids around the block, but it wasn't in a sidecar, they just, like, you know, went really slow. Were you one of the kids, or were you like, that looks dangerous? I don't think so. I don't remember if I did or not. I d- then you didn't do it. Okay. You remember being on a motorcycle. Okay. It's, like, exciting and frightening at the same time. I think, I think I sat on it. And like was like oh, oh, I don't think I want to move though. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like it would be very loud. They were pretty cool though. They had this really good climbing tree in their like um their like side yard, and they were totally okay with all the neighborhood kids coming and like climbing it whenever they wanted to. Like we didn't have to like ask or anything. Nice. Yeah, so they would just be like hanging out, and it, they were probably like they were probably like maybe late 50s, early 60s, and they would just look out periodically and there would just be kids climbing their tree and they're just like, all right, cool. We said they could. And then my other next door neighbor, like on the other side, we would frequently lose things in her yard. So like once every couple days, she would just walk through the backyard and just throw things back over the fence for us. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the island. Back to the... Uh, spooky treasure island as I wrote it in my notes. Ollie's dad has quickly grown weak due to the snake bite, and once he's situated upshore, he's not going to be doing much else for a while. The group tries to clear their heads enough to prioritize their safety and survival, but Phil is still in shock from watching his uncle get eaten, and wonders what the point of trying to survive is if they're just going to get eaten too. But Phil, Coco reminds him, it's a lake monster. They're safe on land. Everything's fine. Coco's mom works on getting the radio up and running while she sends Brian, Coco, and Phil to get firewood. Ollie notices her watch now has a countdown timer for five hours. She says she has no idea what it means, but Brian feels like maybe she does. Suddenly, a voice comes over the radio. It's a haunting, whispery voice calling out for someone named Billy. Someone is waiting for Billy, a whole group of them, in fact. When Coco's mom tries to communicate, the message swiftly changes. Listen to the chimes. She sees in the dark. And then it goes silent. Brian, Coco, and Phil head into the forest for wood. While they walk, Brian and Coco start to tell Phil what really happened in October. He's immediately furious that they knew the truth for so long and didn't tell them. All this time, he thought he was alone, going crazy. That's why he spoke to the Smiling Man. That's why he let the Smiling Man give him a bum 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 fishing lure. Because he was the only one who believed what happened to Phil. After realizing that maybe they were each a bit in the wrong regarding how they've handled the last handful of months, they make amends and focus on the task at hand. While gathering wood, they encounter what first looks like litter, meaning human activity. But they quickly realize what it actually is. Snake skin. The snake comes on land. No. 
Coco notices something else. Hanging from a number of trees are fish hooks of all shapes and sizes. As the wind goes through them, they make a sound like chimes. Hmm. Near the hooks, they also find a cabin. Normally, this would be a sure sign to turn around, but their group is kind of desperate and figured they'll risk some spoops for a bit of shelter. Inside, they find a skeleton on the bed clutching a leather-bound book. Coco takes the book, which she knows is probably a bad idea, but also realizes that if it's a journal, like she thinks it is, they might learn something about their situation. Fair risk assessment, Coco. As they go to leave, they are approached by the first new face they've seen on the island, a hulking man wielding a rusty axe. He's upset that they've disturbed the skeleton, who he calls Tommy. Then he asks if they'd like him to kill them with his axe, so they don't have to wait to die by the snake like he's been waiting. As generous as that is, the kids decline, and Brian picks up Tommy's skull and throws it to give them an opening to leave. As they head back into the forest, the chimes begin. The snake is coming. They find a tree to climb, and although the snake can climb as well, it's heavier than the kids and can't reach them once they get to the higher, thinner branches. For the moment, they're safe. But how are they getting down? Also, what happens when the snake decides to forego them and hunt the others? When they get the radio message going, listen to the chimes, yeah. she sees in the dark. I wrote, predictably, the stupid adults think this is a prank. Why would it be a prank? Right. Why would it be? Who's doing the prank? Are you telling me someone pranked them by sending out a huge water snake to, like, rip out the freaking motor on their boat? So they had to do an emergency landing, and they're going to futz around with the radio saying goofy shit? Like, come on. Come come on. There's only so much, like, once it's like the Shakespeare, no, the Sherlock Holmes thing. Like, once you've eliminated everything that's possible... Now you need to focus on what's the improbable. I completely butchered that quote, but you get what I mean, right? Yeah. It, it, like that grandma in um, all the lovely bad ones where it's like, okay, you're denying the evidence of your eyes by keeping insisting ghosts aren't real when you're seeing it. It's happening. You're crazier by not admitting that what's happening is crazy. Yeah, for sure. I wrote when the message starts coming through the radio and it switches over to like, listen to the chimes she sees in the dark. I just wrote, oh, I hate this. <laughs> That's another thing I find scary. Have you ever listened to any video, uh, listen to video, yeah. listen to any audio of like weird interruptions on radio stations? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. I've heard. A yeah. It's spooky, over. spooky stuff on the airwaves is just like weird. Oh God, I hate it. it like it makes like, makes the hairs on my neck stand up. <laughs> Have you ever listened to a number station? Those are weird. Number station. No. Number stations are on, I don't know the specifics of how ham radios work, but they are certain stations and literally all they do for very long periods of time is it's just some person just saying numbers. Like, they'll just be like, 16, 4, 47, 43, 1. Bingo. <laughs> and I think historically they're used as, like, ways to send code if you are, like, a if you're, like, an agent in a different country or something and you need to, like, transmit information, use a numbers station and um, you have, like, prearranged, like, if you hear certain types of numbers together, it means certain things. There are also some that nobody has any idea what the heck they're for. And it just is just numbers for hours and hours. And it's just very strange. Radio is strange in general. That reminds me of... Did you ever... 
I, they made a movie, but this is it doesn't really relate. But uh, that Stephen King short story, fourteen oh eight. I know of it. I don't. I know think it. you should read it. It's actually really good. The short story, fourteen oh eight. Um, when he's in the room, uh, he tries to like call for help because he can't get out, and he picks it up and his voice goes, "This is nine, nine. This is eight. You know, it, it just it's just doing that. And I'm like, why is it doing that? I don't like that. That's so scary. So when you, as soon as you said like number station, I thought this is nine, and I'm like, no, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. And um, I'm like Team Phil for like being like you guys knew and like punching Ian out for like he told his mom what happened and she put him in therapy, and then they did that. The therapist said that fakey. I believe that you believe it's real, you know. So this kid has just felt so alone. And maybe if Brian hadn't been so exclusive with Ollie and Coco, maybe they could have talked and he could have confided, like, this is what I remember. And then he could have kind of been in, in the group sooner. Yeah, I had I had fairly strong feelings during that section where I was like, Phil, dude, yeah. It makes all the more reason why he doubles down so hard on, like, no, that guy was cool, and he gave me the fishing lure because he was the only one to validate his experience. And so that's why I was saying earlier when, like, he just keeps fishing, and they're like, stop it, and he doesn't because it's so important that he does this. Like, it's not bad writing. It actually is very good writing. And, again, Catherine Arden's fantastic for, like, how well she thinks of the psychology of the characters beyond, like, we read something recently where the psychology of the characters was just pushed aside because it's like, I need the plot to do this. And then the plot did that. And we're like, none of this feels right. So this is like the exact opposite of that. Or it's like, I need the story to go in this direction. So why don't I make the psychology so that it actually makes sense for it to go that way? It's just, it's just so well put together. It's a very good puzzle. Yeah. When Ollie is back trying to like take care of her dad and stuff and he's getting worse and brian's watching her and kind of wondering what she's thinking and stuff i wrote did the smiling man propose a trade somehow maybe ollie's dad for the kids and so i was kind of on the watch for something like that on the watch ha watch i thought he was blackmailing her like okay either you come with me or i take your dad and she's like i'm not willing for you to take my dad so i guess you're taking me yeah, so that was my future prediction. Oh, and when we get to the part of, like, they find all the fishing hooks hanging in the trees, I immediately pictured all those, like, scary little wooden figures hanging from the trees in Blair Witch. And I was like, nope, I don't like a bunch of things hanging from trees. I'm out. I don't like any of this. But that is an, an ingenious, like, alarm system for when that dirty great snake, as Ron Weasley would call it, <laughs> is on the loose. And one more thing, when uh the kids are like up in the tree and like the snakes down below, I I wrote that uh the snakes tremor it, it tremors them. If you anybody <laughs> hasn't seen the movie Tremors, it's like gross underground snake. Actually, they kind of look slug-like too. Oh, don't I they? hate that. Anyway, yeah, don't like it, but um they travel under the ground and they'll just wait for you to like come down from whatever high place or rock you're standing on. It's like, Hey, you can't stay there forever. And I'm just going to wait right here till you come down. And I'm like, Oh no, 
I hate that. It's just like, I can outweigh you. Have you seen Tremors? No. At least not that I know of. It's one of the ones that's been suggested when I'm trying to remember my Sand Shark movie. But they're too big to be the oh, Sand Sharks. It's not it's not Sand Shark. Yeah. I'm positive it's not. Yeah. yeah, it's not what you're remembering. But um I think you would like it because it is well thought out like this. Because they're like, okay, why would these people be isolated? Why wouldn't anyone come check on them? But you know, like it's it's thought of everything and like the characters are smart and no one does anything because plot says do it. Right. You know? It's like it's just so well written. Yeah. And fun, and I've loved it since I was a kid. So. <laughs> and there's no dumb sex scene shoehorned in. It's fine. <laughs> okay. While they take this moment to rest, Coco and Brian mull over whether the Axe Man was a ghost, and Phil makes them promise to tell him everything once they get home. Because there's no reason they should be this calm about what's happening today. They eventually come up with the idea to attack the snake with burning pine cones, and Coco volunteers as bait. She climbs down closer to the snake and gets its attention. Then the boys begin lighting pine cones and throwing them at the snake's eyes and mouth. It's not enough, though, so the boys continue their assault while Coco climbs down and reaches a nearby bundle of firewood. She brings it back to the tree and they load the logs up with fish hooks and or more fire. These prove more effective and the snake eventually retreats long enough for the kids to return to the beach. I just want to pause here for a second. I don't actually know how long that section was but i spent all day reading that chapter because i kept getting interrupted by other things so like in my head them sitting in a tree and deciding to throw pine cones took way too much of the book but i think that might have just been my reading experience it was just your reading experience because in my um notes mm -hmm. that part it takes up most of the page but not the full page okay so yeah i messed myself up 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 a bit there. I was just like, have they been, how long have they been in this tree? And then I'm like, oh, that's, that's probably messed my fault. Messed up your fault. momentum for it. Yeah. <laughs> I've done that with other books before where I feel like a section's a lot longer than it is just because I messed up my reading momentum for it. Yeah, this isn't, this isn't the freaking camping trip from the Deathly Hallows where this is, it moves a lot quicker and a <laughs> hundred million times more interesting and more well-written. There, I said it. Okay. Ollie's dad is looking pretty bad by this point, with his arm black and swollen to the elbow. He's also begun mumbling what sounds like nonsense. Something about twelve becoming six with one remaining? Something about a goblin? While the group recovers from their adventure and prepare for the night, Brian begins reading the book Coco Recovered. It's the journal of none other than William Sheehan of The Goblin, which tells of a crew of twelve being stranded on this unmarked island and slowly being whittled down to six. At that point, three of the men decided to try and escape on a lifeboat, but were lost. It was soon down to just William, his first mate, Tommy, and a man named James. They decide it's time to make their last stand against the snake, and that's where the log ends. Brian and Coco discuss the log, wondering if they're stuck on the island just like the crew of the Goblin was, just like the Axe Man is now. When they look up from the book, Ollie is gone. They panic, but she quickly returns. When she does, something is different about her. She seems less concerned about their situation and is almost nonchalant. Coco asks about the countdown on her watch again, and Ollie shrugs it off, saying it stopped. She goes to care for her dad and gives him some water, which tastes kind of odd. She says it's just the iodine purifier, and within minutes, her father seems to recover almost completely. He doesn't remember much about the last few hours, but he's no longer speaking gibberish. The swelling has gone down, and he can sit up. Things are finally looking up! Everyone fills Ollie's dad in on the situation, and as they start to reassess their situation... The radio crackles again. It's another haunting voice, and it wants to speak to the captain. Then it's gone. 
Coco brings up an interesting fact she learned from the journal. The crew of the goblins stashed a small boat somewhere on the island. And if they can find it, maybe they can escape that way. But how to find the boat? If only there was someone on the island who, due to supernatural means, may have been around when it was first hidden. Take us home. Okay. The group returns to the cabin and find the Axeman singing the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. That sparks something in Ollie. She calls out to the Axeman, asking if he's Captain William Sheehan. He is, in fact, and the skeleton he's been watching over all this time was once Tommy, his first mate, and also his lover. William is dead, too. He's the one who died out by the shore of the tree with the warning carved in it. Tommy died in William's arms when they tried to fight the snake, and because he never got revenge on the beast that killed his love, he's been haunting the island ever since. Then the radio crackles. It's Tommy. He's been waiting for William on the other side. It's time for them to be together again. It's time for William to rest. Then the chimes begin. William quickly tells the group where to go to find the hidden boat, and rushes them along while he goes to intercept the snake and buy them some time. They cross the island and reach the correct shore but can't find the boat. Ollie's watch plays the hot and cold game with them to help them find it tucked away in a cove, and they quickly get it as ship-shape as a 200-year-old sailboat can get. As they set sail, they head straight into a ghostly fog. As they do, Ollie grows agitated. You promise, she says to nobody, and checks her watch, which is showing a much shorter countdown than before. And then the message is love and proud. She announces that she promised she wouldn't tell, but that this isn't the end, and then leaps overboard. She disappears into the water. The boat disappears into the fog. And when they emerge on the other end, they are back in the real world, the lights of the nearby town glowing in the darkness. Brian, in a panic, looks to Coco. In her hands are two items, Ollie's watch and a note. The watch says alive, and the note is in Ollie's handwriting. It's another series of clues, but more clear. In a roundabout way, they explain that Ollie made a deal with the Smiling Man, Ollie for her father. But because the Smiling Man likes to play games, Ollie isn't dead yet. Then Brian notices another note tucked in his jacket pocket. This one is in the Smiling Man's handwriting. Everyone has forgotten her, except you. You have one chance to win her back. Call it a rematch. I'll send an invitation. You'll know it when you get it. See you in book four, mofos! Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm liking this more after discussion than reading it. And I didn't even hate it when I was reading it. I was just like, I wish there was more to this, you know? Yeah. But like, yeah. I was like, where would you put more? And I'm like, I don't know, but I want more. (laughs) I don't know. I I like it. Again, I really liked... I really liked a lot of the concept of it, and reading the synopsis, I'm really excited about it, but I also have the distinct memory of when I was reading it feeling like it was incomplete. Yeah, we're not getting a full story, but, like, the part that we're reading, if this was, like, one big book, and this was, like, another section, you'd be like, all right, bring on the next, what's the next thing, you know? Yeah. Um, So that's kind of why I tried to, like, shift my thinking and just, like, this is just a serialized story. Yeah. Of one bigger story. Yeah. And then once I did that, I was just like, no, now I'm happy now. <laughs> now, I, now I like this. This was just another chapter in the um, Smiling Man experience. Oh, what if they call it the Smiling Man Seasons? Smiling Seasons? Uh, I really like they need to have the man in there because otherwise it just sounds weird. Man Smiling Seasons. Man's, smiling Man sounds more ominous because you're like, what's he smiling? I don't like this. I'm going to cross the street <laughs> and get away from him. Also, I wasn't, at at first I was like, am I reading too into this with the captain and Tommy? And then I was like, no, I'm not reading too much into this. And the subtext became text. Yeah. And I was just like, all right. All right. Rad. Yeah, I think it really, the ending is super chilling and makes me really excited for the finale. 
I think if you're reading these back to back, I think you're going to have a really good experience because then you can you can you can treat it as like what you're saying, the idea of like they're just four chapters of one big story sort of a thing. I think that if you're the sort of person that really feels like a book needs like regardless of where it takes place in a series, a book needs to have some very discreet, you know, it can stand on its own and exist mostly separate while obviously still continuing a larger story but kind of having i think it's going to be a bit more mixed in your feelings of it depending on if you feel like there were maybe uh too many elements in this or if you think that the pacing was weird or something like that i i think that having a certain perspective on it is definitely going to improve your reception of it more so than i think some of the other sequels that we've read that are just very much like it's really good regardless, or it sucks regardless. So I think this one is okay. a bit more contingent on how you're perceiving it within its context. Uh-huh. Ah, still excited for book four, so... Same, and I think it comes out this summer, and I want it. And I kind of want it to be one of our summer books now, because I think we had, like, a free month. We have a free... We have, so we have July as free, um, but it comes out in August. But we can do it so for se- September. No, we can do it for September. We could conceivably, like, do a quick turnaround and have the episode release on September 1st, which is still technically part of summer. Like, school hasn't even started yet. That's true, yeah. Well, in some places. Some places school starts in, like, late August. I've actually had school that school do that before. Like, it started in August, and I was like, no, you're infringing on my time, folks. <laughs> yeah, I kind of want to do that because I, I, I want the next book. I'm going to be honest. We're gonna We're starting to move into, like, uh like YA horror specific podcast because we're going to have like three months in a row of spooky books. <laughs> I don't find anything wrong with that. Right. I think like child horror done well is really good. Oh, there's a YouTuber called pushing up roses that I really like. Oh yeah. Yeah. Who, uh, yeah, yeah. I think I've recommended her. You've, you've, I've, I've read, watch I've, I've watched a couple of her videos, not like religiously, but I've definitely seen a couple. Well, she says, she says that she likes like kid horror like old Goosebumps episodes and old episodes of Are You the F- Afraid of the Dark and that kind of thing, because they have to find a way to make it spooky without relying on horrible violence or being too scary. So you have to find that middle ground, and when it works, it works. Right, yeah. Fantastic. Find something that's chilling without being like, oh, that's just like that's just gross and upsetting, and now it's unpleasant. You know? Yeah, that's kind of like, how I feel about most horror movies. Yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna like fill this fill the pages with gore, and there's not gonna be like some ugly like you know sexual violence or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah, none of that shit. It's like you're gonna have to actually rely on mood, sense of place, character, all that kind of thing to like tell a scary story. And if you want that, you guys should read "Wait Till Helen Comes" by Mary <laughs> Downing Hahn. Because I love that book so much. Though I sometimes wonder if I reread it as an adult, if I'd still like it. But I think I would. I think I would. It's just when I think of child horror and, like, spoops and stuff, Mary Downing Hahn kind of comes to mind first. Because when I was, like, nine or ten, I spent just the whole summer just, like, freebasing her books. Like, I'd go to the library and, like, load up on them and come back and, like, here we go! And back into this world. Um... So I have a couple notes here for outside of my synopsis. I I noticed, I didn't notice this until I was writing my synopsis. So like for the majority of the time on the island, it was six survivors of the goblin. And then 
it got whittled down, and then eventually the only one, like, still wandering around is the captain. Six of them wash ashore, like our heroes, and only five of them make it back as well. Yeah. It's like parallels. That's pretty rad. Okay. This is complete deviation, but uh, you read the second book in the heavy vinyl? Yes, I did. What'd you think? I liked it. Is it... Does it seem I like think. they're going for more, like a like a third? Yeah, okay. there's like a yeah, um, but it doesn't. It's more of a satisfying conclusion than how the first one kind of came to a screeching halt because it got canceled. But um, it kind of moves forward in the storyline and kind of just does like a different story. Like they have this whole like Napster plot that's linked with like Y2K. It's called Y2KO. So, uh, but, um, yeah, like it was good. I think I liked it better than like the first story. Okay. We have listener mail. Oh, who, who is it? What'd they say? It says, uh, this is from uh listener Lily. It says, hi, this is the listener that recommended Wolf Hollow. Since that book was not hey. exactly a happy book, I wanted to recommend one of my favorite books that is more of a happy book. It is a graphic novel called Hookie. Uh, it is a graphic novel following two young witches and their journey dealing with family struggles and the hatred of witches in the world. Uh, they are releasing Hookie 2 on September 6th of this year, and book one is available now. Looks like a book one came out last fall, so still pretty recent. Um, it looks really cute. Um, I pulled it up on Goodreads. It looks like it started its life as a webcomic, and then she maybe readapted it into graphic novel form. Oh, that's fun when they do that. Yeah. Because those books are always full of, like, little extras, too. Yeah. To justify people paying for it after they've already... Right, it's like, know the but story. I've already read it, and it was free. And it's like, well, now there's bonus stuff. Don't you like bonus? Uh, it says, perfect for fans of the OK Witch. Oh, I like the OK Witch. <laughs> yeah, that sounds cute. We could, uh, we could maybe do it for our November 1st because that would be right after Halloween. I've run out of Don't space on my post-it note of planned books, but we could we could stick it in there. <laughs> well, that's not a bad idea. I guess we are just going to be the spooky... The spooky pod pass. The spooky pod pass. <laughs> <laughs> It'll have been a while since we did a graphic novel by that point. And the graphic novel episodes are a lot quicker to get through. And this was a pretty long episode considering how short the book was. I was I was concerned that we weren't going to hit even an hour of like raw recording for this one just because nah. it's kind of slim. Kind of slim, but now I'm thinking it's deceptively slim because there was a lot to unpack. Yeah. And unpack it we did. Yes. Hey, so what rating would we give Dark Waters? I think we were 4 for Small Spaces, 3 for Dead Voices? Question mark. Uh, you know, I'm going to be putting this at like 3.5 on Storygraph. I don't know how that would translate to um, Goodreads. Sure. Probably like just three. Yeah. But it's it's not like a three, but you're on notice. But like three solid, what happens next, you know, is where this yeah. three is for me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, speaking of next books, uh, next month we are going to be reading Chirp. By Kate Messner. And I just got Guys, my... it's a mystery. It's a mystery that takes place on a cricket farm. That's why I'm in. <laughs> I was like, what? 
And I told Josh, and he goes, a cricket farm. And I think there might have been two or three question marks. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a man who is very, doles out his... Yeah, my punctuation is very... uh... Doles out his punctuation very sparingly. Because I told him recently, like, oh my god, Rainbow Rowell has a book of short stories coming out in November. And he wrote, I am excited. And there was... And I was just like, this sounds so sarcastic, but I know he's not. Because <laughs> she's like one of my favorite writers, so like I'm genuinely thrilled to hear whenever she has a new project. But yeah, I'm very much a, I am excited, in text. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I had to train myself out of how that looked oh, to yeah. not be all like, why are you being sarcastic with me? I did write that's extremely funny or something. Like yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, because I. Uh, I, I'm one of those weirdos that, like, puts periods at the end of every text message, and it doesn't mean anything. It's just simply the end of the sentence. But for a lot of people reading sarcastic. text messages, it reads as sarcastic or, like, dismissive. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why it feel, it comes across that way. But um, if, you're, if you're, like, writing a whole bunch of sentences and you have a period and then, like, write another sentence, it doesn't look sarcastic. But just ending it, just full stop, like, that's it, and period, just looks like... What are you doing? Right. Like, what did I do to piss you off? All I did was tell you that this book was coming out. (laughs) And I already have it pre-ordered, so. Nice. All right. So I think that's going to about do it for this episode. This was a good episode, I feel. Yeah. I think, I feel like, um. Most of our episodes are good? No. (laughs) No. (laughs) I realized as I said that. Why did you say that? No, it's because I was specifically thinking of the most recent episode we did that wasn't the bracket was for uh, Virtue and Vengeance, and that was that was like rough going. Episode. I don't remember how the episode turned out, but like that was that was hard. And I think good episode if we have enough to say and there's plenty to discuss. Yeah. Yeah, if we have a lot to discuss, it doesn't really even matter that much what we rated it in terms of, like, if the episode ends up good or not. Like, we just need to have things to talk about. And so it really... Still listen to Tunnels. I I mean, I know that's the book that nearly killed the podcast, (laughs) but, like, I still enjoy listening to it from time to time. Mostly because it begins with, hello, fellow kids, and then you sigh heavily, and then (laughs) you laugh for, like, 30 seconds. (laughs) such a strong opening it's like you know immediately what you're in for and i think we should keep when we keep hating a book i feel like right at the top we should say we didn't like this book so that way anyone who liked it can just nope out immediately right because uh, sometimes like i don't like when people talk badly about things i like because i'm like oh you're kind of bumming me out right now right yeah yeah it... what if they talk strongly about something i don't feel strongly about then i'm like okay that's fine i can hear you out but if I have, like, an emotional stake in it, I'm like, I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. It's tough because, like, I don't necessarily want us to read bad books, but I do think that once every year or so we should have one of those, like, all right, here we go! <laughs> right. But at the same time, like, there's only so many hours in a day, and do you really want to yeah, spend Yeah, exactly. It That's what I'm saying. I don't want to, like, media. seek them out. Yeah. But I also feel like those episodes are more fun when we're in person. Because then it feels more like we're 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 on a team against this like this challenge of a book. I know there's such like a there's such a difference. I notice I listen mostly the podcasts I listen to are from ones season one pre pre pandemic. <laughs> Anyways, 
Hello, Fellow Kids is hosted by Mara and Josh, produced by Josh, music provided by Ben Ash. You can visit him at benash.com. If you'd like to contact us, we are on Twitter and Instagram at HFK Podcast. Uh, I didn't have a good way to put it on Instagram, but I did put the bracket up. I linked it on the Twitter account, so if anybody wants to see what our full bracket looked like for our March Madness episode, it is up there on social media. Uh, you can also email us at hfkpodcast at gmail.com, and if you do, we'll probably read it on the podcast, because we don't get too many of them. Uh, we will talk to you guys next month with Chirp by Kate Messner. Bye! Bye!